Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the new John Girardi Show on Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. So as you all know, by 2035, 100% of all new cars sold in California are going to have to be electric cars. This is just a dictate from the California Air Resources Board. This unelected board of governor-appointed people who just make these grand proclamations that are basically going to massively impact the entire California economy, the, the entire national economy, frankly. If, if, if 100% of all new cars in California have to be electric by 2035, that massively impacts the entire American automotive industry in this enormously profound way. So how are we going to do that? Well, I, I think it's a pie-in-the-sky idea that we're going to get to that point. If you're going to add, you know, 14 million electric cars to California roads, well, our electrical grid, as currently constructed, cannot handle that. And there don't seem to be a lot of good options for how our electrical grid can get to the point of being able to handle that due to a number of self-imposed restrictions that we have here in California. We're not in the business of building new, you know, natural gas-powered power plants or coal power power plants or nuclear power plants, or even there are limitations California's putting itself on building new hydro power plants because the dams hurt the fishies. So our only real options are solar and wind. And the amount of solar and wind we need to construct to get to a point where we can sustain 100% of all new cars being electric by 2035, this massive transformation of the fleet of cars on California roads from mostly gas-powered to mostly electric-powered, and let's not even go into the crazy logistical difficulties involved there, um, what do you do with all the gas stations in California? Uh, how do you how do you make re- replace them with electrical charging stations? I mean, there are about ten thousand plus gas stations in the state of California. Do do we convert them into electric charging stations? How do you how do you make an electric charging station? What do you have to do? Like the There's all this logistical stuff that nobody seems clearly to have thought out, least of all the governor who's off gallivanting in Florida and talking about how terrible Texas and Florida are, and is clearly not all that interested in being the governor here. So how are we going to do it? Well, the thing that's been proposed are offshore wind and solar farms. Now, you got to build a whole heck of a lot of offshore wind and solar farms in order to uh, produce enough electricity 
and we got to build a lot of them pretty darn quickly, relatively speaking. If we're going to get to this goal of, in just 12 years, we're going to get to this goal of 100% of all new cars in California being electric. We're going to have 14 million electric cars on the road. We need to massively expand the grid. So if we're going to do these offshore wind turbine farms, we got to start building a lot of them very quickly. Now, this leads to an interesting story out of Morro Bay uh, that the Bee reports on. <laughs> and it's about basically the environmental impact of wind farms, the impact of wind farms on communities and how these leases for creating offshore wind farms are being given out. So the federal government has these lease auctions to because it, it's it's off the shore of California. So it, it turns into this is a federally controlled project of leasing the offshore site to some whatever company it is that wants to develop these wind farms. And they have an auction to lease the rights to it. Now, the there's all this sort of environmental stuff that plays into it and all this stuff about the community impact. So the federal government in awarding these leases has been telling companies uh, if you can demonstrate cooperation with local communities, you could earn credits that give you an edge in the auction. So in Morro Bay... This company called Castle Wind LLC, which is this kind of this joint venture. It's a Washington-based thing plus a German utility company. They started working on stuff in Morro Bay, and they started uh, talking with Morro Bay fishermen, uh, and they came to this mutual benefits agreement, and basically they the the wind companies trying to offer these different benefits to the local fishing company fishing company then gets on board and is like okay well like there are problems with offshore uh, wind farms that they can damage fishing operations and things like that and so the fishermen and the people who wanted to develop these one of the people who wanted to be a bidder in the auction to get the the rights to this wind farm they reach this agreement, you know, to set up a new fund for infrastructure improvements for the fishing industry and training and employment opportunities, a process for the local fishers to help shape the wind project's design. So that they, they did all this work. Uh, the Morro Bay City Council uh, was all on board with it. So this company basically did the hard work of working with local fishermen, working with the local city government. Um, saying, hey, if we construct this project, we'll do it in this way, and it'll be a way that benefits the community. And in spite of all this work, no. When the auction was held in December, none of that made any difference. And this Castle Wind Company that did all this work with the fishermen, all this work with the city of Morro Bay, they didn't get any of the leases. The leases in areas off San Luis Obispo County went to the three highest bidders, three higher bidders, each of whom bid over $100 million. Among them was Equinor, a Norwegian state-owned oil company who didn't talk with locals in Morro Bay at all. So 
now we're going to have this big wind farm that's going to interfere with fishing operations. It's going to interfere with, could have environmental impacts, all this stuff. So what what is the point of all this? We're going to, we're going to build these massive wind farms after talking at length about, oh, we want to work with communities and, oh, we want to, you know, have this be mutually beneficial. And instead, we just build the things. Anyway. Instead, they, the federal government just leases the thing off to the highest bidder. So clearly what they care, they don't really care about the environmental impact that much. They actually don't care about the fishies that much. What they care about is selling the rights and the federal government makes a bunch of money from selling the rights. Meanwhile, there's also this curious aspect of it. Here's the federal government giving this lease to a Norwegian oil company rather than a LLC with an American and a German company. I mean, why are we... Shouldn't we be prioritizing American companies owning American offshore wind production projects that will be providing electricity for Americans? Shouldn't that be kind of how this works? Why would we be prioritizing... I mean, why would we prioritize just purely the amount of money? I mean, why is a Norwegian company the one buying this? Now, granted, in in the grand scale of things, I guess a Norwegian company buying this is not very troubling. But do we have rules in place preventing, like, a Chinese company from buying this? I should hope so. But there's this attitude I... But the broader picture here is California has this pie-in-the-sky idea that we are going to have 100% electric cars as new car sales... By 2035, therefore, we have this imminent, urgent need to build all these solar and wind farms. The whole thing seems to me completely absurd. This is not going to have zero environmental impact. It's going to have a lot of environmental impact. Any big construction project like this is going to have a big environmental impact. Now we're going to talk about the environmental impact on the fishies, which I thought was the reason why we couldn't build hydropower uh, plants, dams, because it hurts the fishies. So now we're going to hurt the fishies in the sea rather than the fishies in the rivers. Liberals just kind of put themselves in this position where they illogically believed that nuclear power was just evil and it goes back i'm not sure why liberals just kind of forced themselves into this corner nuclear power is the cleanest most productive most efficient way of producing electricity you could possibly have we could beef up the california if we really wanted to beef up the california electrical grid we could build a bunch of nuclear power plants and that would be the way to go but because liberals have just just set it firmly in their heads that nuclear power is the most dangerous horrible evil thing that every nuclear power plant is another chernobyl just waiting to happen it, it is just so firmly embedded in the liberal brain that nuclear power is bad because oh but what do you do about the nuclear waste 
Nuclear power plants produce less and less and less nuclear waste. You're able to store it. You're able to keep it contained. It's not the end of the world. Meanwhile, it's probably going to be less environmentally troubling than trying to build a whole bunch of offshore wind farms and doing so and just giving away the lease to companies who don't care about their communities, don't care about working with the local community. You're going to pass over companies who actually worked really hard with local fishermen and local this and the city councils and everything, and you're just going to give it to the highest bidder anyway. So clearly the federal government doesn't actually really care about the environmental impact here. They just want the money from the offshore wind farm rights. But the whole thing just seems so unnecessarily difficult and so unnecessarily pie in the sky from like 20 different angles. One from the angle of do we actually need 100% of new vehicles in California to be electric? Two, this hamstringing of our efforts to produce more electricity by taking solar off the table, natural gas off the table, coal off the table, all, all and hydro off the table. Taking all of that off the table so that the only thing we can do are these inefficient, finicky difficult to build wind farms where the best place to build them is in the ocean off the shore the whole thing just seems so silly all right when we return the roots of liberal hatred for nuclear power next on the john gerardi show the john gerardi show power talk 96 7 and am 1400 California is doing all this ridiculous stuff trying to build wind farms offshore in order to power a future by that by 2035, 100% of all new cars in California will be electric rather than build nuclear, rather than build nuclear power plants. This has led me to ask, why do liberals hate nuclear power so much? So I found a fun piece from Scientific American in which the author, clearly a very pro-nuclear power dude, uh, Ashutosh Jogalakar, a chemist interested in the history, philosophy, and sociology of science, uh, he writes this five points, five reasons why intelligent liberals don't like nuclear energy. So he starts, number one, ignorance. This simple reason remains remarkably pervasive. I'm not trying to sound preachy or elitist here, but reading two or three books would greatly benefit people who have a gut reaction against nuclear energy. The whole set of beliefs about any kind of radiation in any proportion being harmful, about nuclear plants releasing large amounts of radiation, when in reality they release fractions of what everyone naturally gets from the environment, about nuclear waste being a hideously convoluted and insoluble problem, the problem is largely political, not technical, can be dispelled by reading some basic books on radiation and nuclear energy. The most important revelation in this context is how, in our daily lives, we face risks that are hundreds of times greater than those from nuclear energy, transportation, air pollution, etc., without being nonplussed. In the half-century during which almost 500 nuclear power plants have been steadily humming and providing energy to millions, there have only been two serious accidents, Chernobyl and Fukushima, one of which was a truly rare event and the other was entirely preventable. The number of deaths from these two accidents are a small fraction of the number from almost every other energy source, not to mention from indoor and outdoor pollution arising from chemical and fossil fuel sources. In addition, coal-fired plants emit much more radioactivity than any nuclear power plant. The small casualty rate from even the two worst nuclear accidents in history attests to the generally outstanding record of nuclear safety all over the world and in the U.S. in particular. 
So that's the first thing is is this ignorance of like Chernobyl was so dramatic that therefore they think nuclear power is like this horribly da- actually it's not that dangerous. Coal power coal power plants are more dangerous. They also release more radioactivity, which I think is hilarious. But it's also thing thinking about Chernobyl like Chernobyl I think got into the liberal brain in the 1980s. So the Chernobyl disaster for those who don't know. Uh, Chernobyl was a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. And this was under Soviet Ukraine. And it was this major power plant providing uh, energy for the region of Ukraine, the USSR, Soviet-controlled Ukraine. And the Soviets were building these power plants in these kind of Soviet cost-cutting, like corner-cutting ways where the exterior walls of the Chernobyl plant were about as thick as the walls of, like, my radio studio over here. That's the one thing you'd think if you're building a nuclear power plant. Hey, let's have the outer walls be really thick in case something bad happens. And it was just this combination of stupid, communist, bureaucratic, incompetent stupidity that led to the disaster and after the fact, everyone realized, oh, don't build nuclear reactors like this. And no one built nuclear reactors like the Soviet ones ever again. So the idea that in America we're going to build a power plant that way in 2023 is ridiculous. But because that happened in the 1980s when people were starting to want to ramp up with nuclear power in America, this caused all these liberals to have this emotional reaction and never want to deal with nuclear power ever. I also really think uh, the Simpsons had something to do with this. The Homer Simpson working at a nuclear power plant and like uh, all the jokes they made about nuclear power. You know, I guess I don't begrudge the Simpsons for wanting to make jokes, but I think that actually had an impact on a decent number of people. So one is ignorance. Two is bad psychological connections that a lot of liberals still connect nuclear power with nuclear weapons. And the author of this piece from Scientific American goes on to say, knowing the basics about how different weapons are from reactors can contribute to mitigating this misunderstanding. For instance, it's been known for years that contrary to popular belief, reactors can't blow up like a bomb. The fundamental fact to be misunderstood is that every power source carries some risks and the danger from nuclear proliferation mainly exists because of human fallibility, not because of some inherent problem with nuclear energy. Another flawed connection is between environmentalism and the boycott of nuclear power. Unfortunately, diehard environmentalists are mainly responsible for reinforcing this connection. Their decades-long opposition to nuclear energy started with some reasonable premises, but then mainly descended into irrational, uninformed, and exaggerated polemic. Number three, waste. What do you do with nuclear waste? Many people think that this is the single greatest threat from nuclear power that we will all be inhabiting vast atomic wastelands if we allow nuclear power to flourish. It's not a trivial issue, but many of the problems have to do with inefficiency and increased proliferation threats from burying valuable plutonium-containing nuclear waste. If we reprocessed the waste from nuclear reactors on a large scale, much of it would become much more benign and could be handled much more safely in low volumes. Yucca Mountain was a failure because it was a hasty, politically motivated project that was a public relations disaster. But other enterprises like the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant are much more sound and should be vigorously pursued. Reason number four, Republicans. 
Liberals don't like nuclear power because they think Republicans like it. <laughs> that's that's about it for this number. Four. And this this guy writing this piece, I think, is himself pretty liberal. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But he says, yeah, uh, between nuclear, there's a connection between nuclear weapons and belligerent right-wing political leaders that drives liberals' disdain for all things nuclear. If the erroneous connection between power and weapons takes hold in your mind, then it is not too difficult to perceive a connection between nuclear energy and right-wing excesses. Although George Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan presided over sweeping weapons reduction reforms, in the last two decades, Republicans have been vocal opponents of nuclear treaties and compromises. It does not help that climate change deniers such as Republican blah, 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 are also pro-nuclear power. So a lot of reasons liberals don't like nuclear power is purely just reaction against Republicans. And five is fear of the unknown. So, I, you know, I, I think these are actually pretty good reasons. And it's hilarious to me how California is going to do everything possible under the sun. Everything We're going to build wind farms offshore. We're going to hire, we're going to lease ocean, you know, offshore ocean property to a Norwegian oil company to build a bunch of offshore wind farms, which are highly finicky, constantly break, not very efficient, especially not very efficient when it's not windy. Although, I guess, when you build them over the ocean, it's usually windier. Rather than just building nuclear power plants, I mean, which is the clear, obvious solution if you genuinely want to get to, a, to an all-electric future, nuclear is the way to go. Probably no one has done more harm to the environment than every liberal who ever prevented a nuclear power plant from being built. Like, that is clearly the worst, the worst environmental harm ever done would be any liberal who stopped a nuclear power plant from being built. Because again, with nuclear power, there's no emissions. There's no emissions into the atmosphere. Yes, you have nuclear waste, and you got to figure out how to dispose of it, how to contain it, but it's not like emitting stuff into the ozone layer and causing climate change. So it's like the obvious answer, and it's the one answer liberals absolutely refuse to because of a bunch of like negative 1980s political associations that they have with the topic. When we return, a Trump legal matter that isn't receiving much coverage at all. This civil trial that Trump is undergoing for an alleged rape. That's next on The John Girardi Show. The John Girardi Show. Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. As many of you know, Donald Trump is facing a criminal charge in Manhattan for falsifying business records in furtherance of... Well, something, some 
some kind of felony. No one's really sure what, because the indictment from the district attorney of Manhattan was so poorly written. But there's another Trump legal thing that's happening right now that I actually think is a little, it's a little more sensitive. It's a little different. And I I think it hasn't received as much coverage for some reason. And that's this civil case against Trump in which a woman named E. Jean Carroll is alleging that President Trump raped her in the mid-1990s. So she is suing Trump for a... So this is not a criminal charge against Donald Trump for a crime of rape. This is a civil lawsuit that this woman is filing against Donald Trump for uh, for battery, for unconsented touching, unconsented harmful touching, for battery and then for defamation because Trump had talked about this allegation before and said things that this woman believes were defamatory to her, that sl- slandered her reputation uh, by the way in which Trump talked about the allegation. All right, so I- I'm going to talk about this like a lawyer here. And just lay out what has been, you know, sort of sort of the stuff that's been going on within this case. Uh, we had cross-examination of uh, Miss Carroll herself uh, by Trump's attorney today. So when you're talking about a civil lawsuit as opposed to a criminal prosecution. Okay, so this is just this individual woman herself suing Donald Trump for allegedly raping her. She was at a department store, had an encounter with him. They went, apparently they were in some private place. I don't know if it was a dressing room or what. And she alleges that Trump raped her. A civil lawsuit is different from a criminal prosecution. Okay, all she's asking for are, you know, monetary damages, as opposed to in a criminal prosecution, you'd if you were charged with rape, you'd be looking at going to jail. So civil lawsuits, you're usually looking for either monetary damages or some other sort of ruling from the judge, like an injunction to stop someone from doing something or things like that. In a civil lawsuit, nobody's going to jail. And so because nobody's going to jail... That's an important thing to think about. Because nobody is going to jail, the standard of proof, the burden of proof that you have to meet to make your case is not as high. For a criminal prosecution, you need to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, that's the standard. To win in a civil lawsuit, you only need to show that you more likely than not are correct. So those are the two standards here to think about. In a civil lawsuit, to prevail, you just need to show that your side is more likely than not true. In a criminal criminal prosecution, if you just show, well, it's more likely than not he did it, but there's a decent amount of... Most of the evidence points towards him do it, but there's a decent amount of evidence saying he didn't. Um, Then you probably won't get a conviction against the guy. 
Okay, you get a conviction by showing overwhelming evidence beyond any reasonable doubt that this guy did this thing of which he is charged. Why? Because the the stakes are a lot higher. If the state, if the government is going to lock you up and take away your freedom, they have a very high burden that they have to meet, a very high bar they have to get over in order to demonstrate that. Okay, so it's it's we deem that to be much more important. And so the burden of proof is higher in a civil lawsuit. We're just talking about money usually. And we just sort of take the attitude. It's not as important. So in a civil lawsuit to prove your case, you have to just show it more likely than not to be true. So that's an important point here. She doesn't have to show in order to prevail here. She doesn't have to show that Trump was guilty of this act beyond a reasonable doubt. She has to just prove to this pool of nine jurors in this case. I guess in New York, you don't need a, in civil cases, you don't need a full complement of 12. It's uh, six men and three women. She just has to show by a preponderance of the evidence that he did the thing that she alleges he did. So Trump has denied this accusation. And Andy McCarthy, writing about it in National Review, says, Indeed, the fiery rhetoric with which he has done so once while he was president and again last year when he was out of office forms the basis for the two defamation claims she has filed against him. Now, Carol's allegation is this. So on direct examination, her attorney's asking her the questions. Carol reaffirmed the narrative outlined in her civil complaint. Asked at the start why she was in court, Carol told the jury, I am here because Donald Trump raped me, and when I wrote about it, he said it didn't happen. He lied and shattered my reputation. I'm here to try to get my life back. She says that she had met Trump in person at least once prior to the alleged attack. There's a black and white photograph of such an encounter said to date from the late 80s in which Trump is accompanied by his then wife, the late Ivana Trump, and Carol by her then husband, John Johnson, who was a well-known New York television reporter at the time. More to the point, Carol asserts that she and Trump, long known as a voracious consumer of television reporting, ran in the same media circles. He had something of a profile at the time, an advice columnist at L. She had something of, an, of a profile at the time. She was an advice columnist at L magazine, who was a frequent guest on the Today Show and Good Morning America, and who for a time hosted a daily program, Ask E. Jean, on America's Talking, a network started by Fox News founder and Trump's longtime acquaintance, the late Roger Ailes. Carol does not contend that she knew Trump well or even that she ne- he necessarily knew her name when the alleged incident occurred. She was 52 at the time. Now she is 79. He was 49 in the time frame she describes. She relates that on the evening in question, she was leaving Bergdorf, this department store where she was a regular customer, when she had a chance encounter with Trump, who was entering the store. She says he appeared to recognize her, put his hand up to stop her exit, and said in a friendly manner, hey, you're that advice lady. In response, she quipped, Hey, you're that real estate tycoon. She says they made small talk and that she was charmed, struck in particular by Trump's boyish good looks. She says Trump told her he was at Bergdorf to buy a present for a girl whom he would not identify. He consulted her on what he ought to get. After some banter about handbags and hats, Trump said he wanted to buy lingerie instead. She recounts accompanying up the escalator to the lingerie department, which she claims was unusually empty for Bergdorf with no sales attendant in sight. There she claims Trump grabbed from a counter a see-through bodysuit in lilac gray, insisted that Carol should model it for him. She recalls playfully countering, he should try it on. They teased each other briefly. Suddenly, she said he grabbed her by the arm and said, let's put this on and sort of forced her then afterwards into a sexual act. So that's the nature of 
her story. Uh, Carol says she called her friend Lisa Bernbach, a journalist and correspondent on morning television on the street right immediately after. Carol said she described the alleged rape in detail that Bernbach pleaded with her to go to the police. Carol did not want to do this, opined that the incident was brief and now over and implored Bernbach not to tell anyone. Bernbach is going to testify at the trial, corroborating Carol's account. Now, this is a difference, you know, between what was one of the reasons why the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh were so weak? Um, There was no corroboration, okay? There was nobody who said, ah, yes, I remember when Christine Blasey Ford, right afterwards, she told me about how this boy had sexually assaulted her and his name was Brett Kavanaugh. No, there was nobody like that in the Christine Blasey Ford case. This woman has someone that contemporaneously she talked to about the incident like immediately after. So that's some corroboration. Now, how strong is it? How weighty is it? Again, this is also, though, this is another rape allegation from a long time ago. Now, For many women, it's incredibly difficult and painful for a number of reasons to come forward with a rape allegation. It's it's highly intrusive and embarrassing and difficult and painful. And there's all sorts of reasons why women might delay bringing forward a rape allegation. Regardless of the truth of that, it does make it more difficult to prove a rape allegation the longer in time away you are. Um just memories tend to fade over time. Uh, our ability to verify things fades over time. So she is, I mean, she's going to be able to bring a friend who at least has a contemporary, contemporaneous account that, yes, she told me that this happened at the time. So it's some corroboration, but how firm is it? How much, you know, how much weight will the jury give to it? Hard to say. So Bernbach, this friend, will testify later in the trial, corroborating Carol's account. She has reasoned, and Carol appears to agree, that Carol called her because Bernbach had been working on an article about Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort for New York Magazine. The piece Mikasa Sukasa ran in the week's February 12, 1996 edition, which is relevant to Carol's effort to put a date on the alleged attack. So that this is another thing that's happening. She's, she's providing some details that enable some ability to say what date it happened. Um, That was another weakness with Christine Blasey Ford's case against Brett Kavanaugh. She didn't even really have a firm date, time frame, even place where it happened. Uh, Carol, in accusing Trump of this stuff, has at least some of those details. In the days that followed, Carol said she confided in in a second journalist friend, New York television news anchor Carol Martin. E. Jean Carroll, the the woman alleging rape here, says Martin strongly advised her to follow her instincts and tell no one. Forget it, Carroll recalls her friend saying he has 200 lawyers. He'll bury you. Martin is also slated to testify and she will back Carroll's contemporaneous report of a sexual assault and her own advice that Carroll stay silent. All right. So. Then there's also defamation claims and defamation is kind of its own different thing. We'll talk about that a little bit when we return, but you can kind of see like, look, this is a Manhattan jury. She has some evidence. All I'm saying is this, whether you believe the allegation or not, 
this could present a real problem for Trump. It's not that he's going to go to jail or anything, but if he loses this lawsuit, it provides people with yet another club to beat him with of he was found liable in a lawsuit for rape. I mean, that, that's, that is a distinct possibility here unless they can settle this before you know the jury makes a decision. We'll return to talk about the defamation claim that's next on The John Girardi Show. The John Girardi Show. Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. Trump is facing a lawsuit in Manhattan over charges that he sexually assaulted a woman named E. Jean Carroll, former advice columnist uh, from Elle magazine and in other media outlets during the 90s. Uh, who claims, who alleges that Donald Trump sexually assaulted her in the mid-90s at a department store. She's also alleging that Trump engaged in defamation against her. Now, uh, defamation is kind of interesting, basically sort of lumping libel and slander together. If someone lies about you in a way that harms your character, harms your standing, you might have a case for defamation. And a lot of it hinges on your status. If you are you know, the mayor of Fresno or some other public figure, you would have to show that the person lying about your character was engaged in malice, that they knew they were lying, they knew they were saying something that was false, and they deliberately published it deliberately to harm your character. If you are a private person and you sue for defamation, it's an easier burden to meet for you. You just have to show that the person publicizing false stuff about you was negligent, that they maybe they didn't know that what they were saying was false, but they should have known. And we do this because in America we value First Amendment freedom of speech and we don't want to impose rules that have a chilling impact on people's ability to talk about public figures uh, in a free and open way. We want people to be able to criticize someone without being afraid of a lawsuit. This is why Devin Nunes' various lawsuits for defamation against, uh, you know, Twitter impersonators, you know, the Twitter cows, you know, people alleging uh, Nunes wasn't a real farmer. That's why all of Nunes's lawsuits uh, for defamation never worked. And it was the one thing about Nunes who, I, I don't know, maybe he had some other strategy about it that I, I didn't understand. But none of those lawsuits were successful. And it's very obvious. He was a member of the House of Representatives. He was on the House Intelligence Committee. He was a public figure. People can make fun of you. People can make up allegations about you. They can do all kinds of stuff like that, and you're not going to win. So this E. Jean Carroll is also alleging that Trump engaged in defamation against her when he denied the, the allegation that he sexually assaulted this woman, called her a whack job, said, oh, she's not my type. Oh, she's a whack job. Um and said that he harmed her reputation by those statements. Now, setting aside whether we think this happened or not, again, I just want to reiterate. I think Trump is facing some risk here because, again, it's a Manhattan jury. Nine people from Manhattan. If you take any nine people from Manhattan, I'll guarantee you at least seven of them hate Donald Trump's guts. So the the notion that he's, you know, that people are just going to take his word for it as opposed to this woman's word for it, I I find that questionable. I don't know. I, I think he could very well be held liable for this unless he's able to settle this before the jury reaches their decision. 
That'll do it for John Girardi Show. See you next time on Power Talk. The John Girardi Show. Power Talk 96.7 AM 1400 and the iHeartRadio app. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.